This week's reading is from Mark chapter 8, verses 11 to 30. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, or ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. This is God's word. Evening, everybody. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Phil. It's uh, lovely to see you, and it'd be great to meet afterwards. I'm going to pray, and then uh, we're going to start this series in Mark 8 together. Our Father God, our prayer is simple. We pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Amen. Why is there so much confusion about Jesus? There is a a huge amount of confusion about who he is. You can uh, go to, if you're in Edinburgh at the moment for the Fringe Festival, just beginning up there, you can go see plays where there is transgender Jesus and alien Jesus to go with the usual feminist Jesus, socialist Jesus, revolutionary Jesus. Who Jesus is, is a question that causes enormous confusion. But I want to look at a slightly different question tonight, which is why is it that some people seem to, to work out, oh, this guy is who the Bible claims, the saviour of the world, the son of God, and other people just never get it. I've got an old uni friend who has been going to church since he was a little boy. He's, he's kind of traditionally British. He couldn't imagine not going to church really on a Sunday, school chapel, every day of the week, through all five years of boarding school. And yet he's never really, he's never worked out who Jesus is. He's still, yeah, it just doesn't quite make sense to him. He's got questions. It's all not quite, yeah, not quite there. It looks to all the world like he should get it. He's had so many opportunities. He's been, he's had the Bible read to him ever since he was tiny. But he's never got it. 
And then those of us who were at Revive, we were hearing this morning um, uh, from a, a lady on the, one of the new church plants on the Beacon Tree Estate over in Dagenham. No Christian background at all. Family totally opposed. So when the church first went round to visit her, her mum chased the church off the premises. I mean, this is not a family which is warm to religious things. As she described it, a totally messed up life, full of addiction and abuse. And yet, as the church shared with this unlikely lady the gospel of Jesus Christ, it made sense to her. And she put her trust in Christ and was up on the stage. Uh, and it was a huge emotional time hearing her, her explain how Jesus had saved her. Why does she get it and some don't? Mark's answer for us tonight is that people naturally are blind and we need Jesus to perform the miracle of opening our eyes. Let's see what he means. It's a very, very important passage as we work out whether we're still looking into Christian things and wondering why is it that they get it and I don't. Or if we are Christians and we're wondering why we've got it and why some of our friends don't. We're, as I said, we're starting this, um, this section in Mark. We're going through the summer uh, with Mark, Lessons in Discipleship. Uh, Mark is the shortest and most dramatic and most exciting, really, account of the life of Jesus, of the four eyewitness accounts. And uh, in Mark, you really see Jesus the man of action. Uh, more happens in four verses of Mark than three chapters of John at some points. I mean, he really, it's just, it's a, a chapter in, in Mark is like a, a day in, or an hour in the, in the series 24. Just everything happens. It's incredibly action-packed. And because of that, um, because it's brief and just punchy, some people think Mark is simple. You know, he's the, he's the least uh, advanced of the Gospels, the most straightforward. But that's not right. As well as being exciting and action-packed, Mark is not simple. Mark is subtle. He's briefer because he often doesn't explain things. He shows you things and leaves you to work them out. And Mark is very much the disciples' eye view of Jesus. So in Mark, you get a number of groups of people. The religious leaders, they basically always get things wrong, by and large. Uh, Individuals who come to Jesus, they quite often get things right, especially if they're women. They're usually getting things right. The disciples, they're, they're somewhere in between. Sometimes they get it awfully wrong, and sometimes they really seem to have got it. And in Mark's account, we really are being put into the sandals of the disciples, and, and it's as if we're going with them on this journey with Jesus, working out who he is and what it means to, to trust him and follow him. Now, as I said, Mark is subtle, and one of the ways that Mark teaches us is through his structure. So there's a big structure. You've got it, um, it should appear on the screen. You've also got it on the bottom of your, your sheets. Uh, Mark is split into three. There's a uh, 1, 1 to 8, 26 basically takes place in Galilee. And it's dominated by the question asked in 441, who is this man? Who is Jesus? Then this middle section, uh, which is uh, marked by the phrase on the way or on the road, it's sometimes translated. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? And what does it mean for us to follow him? And then the final section, 11.1 to 16.8, which takes place in Jerusalem. How will Jesus be the Messiah, the Savior? How will he save and rule and lead his people? And we're in this middle section, on the way. And it's all about discipleship, following Jesus, the journey of life following Jesus. Hence, again and again, on the way, on the way, on the road, on the way. 
And as we'll see shortly, uh, Mark doesn't just use big picture structure in the whole of his gospel account. He also uses structure in smaller ways. And tonight, we'll see that a very subtle bit of structural work by Mark will open our eyes to what he means. So let's, uh, let's dive through the story. Um, the disciples are blind to who Jesus is. Verse 11. Verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked for a sign from heaven. If you know anything about the life of Jesus, you probably know the Pharisees are the bad guys. And you'd be right. They're the religious elite of the day and they're up to their usual tricks. There is nothing vaguely honest about their approach. They're not saying, look, you claim to be a religious leader, Jesus, and we would just, you know, we just don't want to back some uh, kooky cult leader. We want to make sure that, that you're right. So please, could you just give us the evidence so that we, uh, we, we're not fools for trusting in you? They've not come to do that at all. They've come to test him, to trap him, to trip him up, you could translate it. And what they ask for is, show us a sign, a sign to prove you're from heaven. That's what they're asking for. Really? You've been there when he's raised a cripple who's been paralyzed for all his life. You've been around when he's raised the dead. You've, you've been around when he's fed an entire crowd of thousands with just a couple of bits of bread. And you want a sign to prove he's from God. You are coming to him as people are staggering away with full stomachs after all he had was seven bits of bread and there were 4,000 people in the wilderness. They're not going to change their minds no matter what he produces, no matter what he does. The question that dominates this bit of Mark is who is this man? But they have not come with open minds to weigh the evidence. They've come with hard hearts, convinced this man's a charlatan and we want to get rid of him, we want to reject him and we're looking for an excuse to do so. And so Jesus turns from them and he and the disciples hop into a fishing boat and head across the Sea of Galilee to the northwestern shore. Verse 12, he sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. Now, at some point in the journey, the disciples get hungry. It's a group of men. I'm guessing it's about 15 minutes in max before somebody says, uh, who's brought the snacks? And at that point, they realize, ah, we didn't bring any bread. Verse 14, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. And Jesus takes this mention of bread as an opportunity to teach them something. And so he says, verse 15, be careful, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. What does he mean? Well, for that, you've got to read on to 16 to 21. They discussed this with one another and said, oh, it's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have ears but fail to see and eyes but fail, fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. He said, do you still not understand? Jesus is frustrated. Can you see that they don't seem to get it? But the question is, what is it that they don't get? Let me show you. In verse 16, he warns them about the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. 
And immediately they jump to the conclusion, oh, Jesus is annoyed because we forgot to bring bread, so we're all going to go hungry for the journey, which is pretty stupid. Is Jesus really going to be annoyed by the fact there's only one loaf of bread? When you think about it, this is the best ratio they've had. You know, 5,000 people, five loaves, 4,000, four loaves. Here you've got 13 to one. That is pretty good going. And you've got Jesus. In his miraculous hands, this is brilliant. You know, this is a cinch. That's clearly not what Jesus is on about. His issue is not that you're forgetful about bread. His issue is that you are blind about me. Verse 17. Why are you talking about having no bread, Jesus asked them. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? They have seen miracle after miracle. One uh, speaker I heard described them as the 12 marvelettes because they go through the first half of of Mark's gospel in the old language, marveling at everything Jesus does. He raises the dead and they marvel. He walks on water and they marvel. I mean, you would, you know, let's not be too harsh on them. Uh, He feeds 5,000 from almost nothing and they marvel. He said, you have seen so many marvelous things and have you still not worked out who I am? Have you still not worked out that I am God's Messiah, the anointed one, the savior king? But their eyes have not been opened. And this is what he's getting at when he warns them about the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Uh, Yeast is something that works through and affects the whole batch of dough, of bread. And And what he's saying is, look, don't take on the opinions, the attitudes of the powerful people of the day, because their attitudes will stop you seeing who I am. He's saying, don't be shaped by their way of thinking or you will never see the truth about Jesus. Do you see? The Pharisees are always demanding a sign. They refuse to accept the evidence that was plainly there because they want a new sign, another sign, a different sign, this particular sign. Then we'll believe. And so Jesus says, beware the attitude of the Pharisees that is always demanding new evidence and is never satisfied. This evidence just isn't enough. There's always a reason why this isn't quite good enough. Beware that attitude that isn't actually looking for evidence, but is looking for an excuse to reject the evidence. Beware the yeast of the Pharisees. Herod's yeast is different. In chapter 6, he too knew of Jesus' miraculous signs. But he refused to accept the preaching of John the Baptist and refused then to accept Jesus for a different reason. If he accepted it, he would have to repent. He would have to recognize that his life was sinful. And he would have to stop indulging in the particular sexual sin that he enjoyed. And so Herod refused to see the evidence about Jesus that John told him because it was going to cost him too much and stop him doing what he wanted. What makes this exchange in the boat even more serious is that spiritual blindness is not a neutral thing in the Bible. Listen to the words of Ezekiel, the prophet, writing around 600 years earlier. Ezekiel 12, verses 1 to 2. The prophet writes, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, you are living among a rebellious people. They have eyes, but do not see, and ears to hear, but do not hear, for they are a rebellious people. They are guilty for their blindness. Their rebelliousness, their sin has 
blinded them. It's as if they've scratched their own eyes. It's rather like drink driving. Uh, you know, someone causes a terrible accident, kills a family, and then says, look, in my defense, I was so drunk, I couldn't even see straight. I, didn't, I, did, I couldn't see the car coming, and I couldn't see I was on the other lane. You don't say, oh, well, that makes it all right. You chose to drink and drink and drink and drink. You are guilty for your blindness. It is your fault. It's not an excuse. And the Bible says the same about us. That actually, it is our fault. It is our hardness of heart. It's our sinfulness. It's the fact that we don't want to see who Jesus is that stops us being able to see. Which begs the question, what on earth is the hope then for these disciples and for us? And we'll see that in the next two sections. But before we get there, I do just want to warn us that um, our culture, I think, has its own yeast. I don't mean like go to the supermarket. I mean, there, there are attitudes in our culture which stop you seeing the truth about Jesus. Uh, to my mind, you, you can probably think of others, but to my mind, the two most dominant at the moment are the yeast of scientific materialism and the yeast of personal fulfillment. What do I mean by that? The yeast of scientific materialism is this. Uh, There's no problem with science. There are a number of professional scientists among us here at church. But scientific materialism is the sneering, dismissive attitude that says everything we know is told to us by science. And therefore, I reject any claim that there is anything outside of science. It's not a scientific claim. Actually, it's a faith claim, that. And so I can, I can shut down the discussion at the very mention of God. I call it the reverse Jerry Maguire. It's probably the only really, really good film Tom Cruise has been in. Jerry Maguire, have you seen it? It's a, it, it, there's a number of famous moments in it. One of them is the particularly famous line as he has this long rehearsed speech to win back uh, his girl. And uh, he goes all the way through it. And she tearfully says, you had me at hello. Um, you, you had me at hello. You didn't need to say all of that. And there are times when it feels like the opposite goes on. People say, you lost me at God. The moment you mentioned God, you lost me. I checked out of the conversation. That's not an argument. It's, a, it's an unwillingness to engage in arguments, in discussion. The scientific materialism yeast that's very prevalent in our culture says, I, I don't even have to listen or entertain your, your arguments, your ideas, because they involve God, and I check out at the mention of God. Beware that attitude. Beware that attitude. The second is the, the yeast of personal fulfillment. The moment Jesus starts to talk about things like deny yourself and take up your cross, Yes. Uh, when Jesus starts to say that he has the right to tell us who we can and can't have sex with, how we can or should spend our money, or who we should spend time with, you think, ooh, whoa, uh, hold on a minute. Look, I have a right to personal fulfillment. I have a duty I have a duty to, to pursue my potential, to fill my dreams. And well, if Jesus is going to impinge on that, then this just can't even be right. 
And again, it, it stops me even looking at whether Jesus might be telling the truth. Because I think the consequences, just like Herod did, whoa, if it might if it might impinge on my personal fulfillment, my plan for my life, then I refuse to look at it, to be honest. You may be able to think of others, but beware the yeast of our culture. And it's not just something that affects people who don't believe in Jesus. We're part of our culture. It affects you and me if we're part of church as well, in the way that we think. But don't if you're still looking into Christian things, if you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian. Beware those attitudes that stop you even looking at the evidence for Jesus. The disciples are blind to who Jesus is, but wonderfully, wonderfully, Jesus opens the eyes of the blind. We're not told whether uh, Jesus miraculously fed them or let them go hungry to teach them a lesson. Immediately, Mark, being Mark, just takes us to the next bit of action. Verse 22. They came to Bethsaida. And some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. This is hugely significant. Jesus has been lamenting the failure of the disciples to see who he is. You have eyes but can't see. And in the Old Testament, we're told that the Messiah or the Christ, same word, God's promised, anointed, savior, king, God himself come to save his people. We're told that he will, in the, eyes, um, in the words of Isaiah 35, the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. That's what will happen when the Messiah comes. Now, there is a lot that strikes us as pretty odd about what happens next. Verse 23, he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? That's pretty weird. Let's just acknowledge that. I think, what? He spat in the man's face? Look, I think what's going on here is Jesus is entering the sensory world of the blind man. The guy's absolutely blind. And so everything about this particular miracle stresses Jesus touching him. He touches him, takes him by the hand, leads him. He touches his eyes with his saliva. Everything about it is Jesus, uh, Jesus actually entering into this man's world as he heals him. But the really odd thing, actually, is what happens next. Verse 24. He looked up, this is the blind man, and said, Ah, I see people. They, they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, Don't even go into the village. Now, what on earth is going on there? Is Jesus having an off day? <laughs> I mean, this is the only time in the Gospels we read anything like this, that Jesus has to have another go. He's like, oh, need to, you know, didn't use enough power the first time. I mean, what is going on? Well, that can't be right, partly because we've just come from chapter 7, where he's, he's managed to heal somebody at a distance. said, you know, go home, they're healed. He's just fed 4,000 people. He's raised the dead with his voice before. Jesus has never lacked the power to heal. The disciples are spiritually blind. Jesus heals a man who is physically blind. And you know what's going to come next. And it's in the next bit that we see why on earth is it that Jesus sort of fails to heal him or half heals him and then fully heals him. The disciples are spiritually blind. Jesus opens the eyes of a blind man miraculously. And then what's going to happen? 
Well, it's no surprise. Peter sees that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 27. Now, this is the turning point in Mark. As I say, the first section is totally dominated by the question, who is this man? The crowds asked it in chapter one. The religious leaders asked it in chapter two. The disciples asked it in chapter four. Herod himself asked it in chapter six. And at the risk of stating the blindingly obvious, Christianity is about Jesus Christ. Christianity is a way of life, but that is secondary. The heart of Christianity is Jesus. And before anything else, before anything else, you need to work out who Jesus is. You can't just look into what Christianity says about money or politics or relationships or family and seek to live out that advice. Christianity is about knowing and trusting in Jesus Christ. That's why the first whole half of Mark's gospel is about who is he? So if you're still looking into into Christian things, you may well have questions about how does the Bible fit with science? What is the Bible's view on sex? And how do you square the the loving God of the Bible with, with suffering? And those are important questions, finding the answers to the matters. But the main thing is who Jesus is. And until you've worked out that, none of the rest will make sense, to be honest. Because he's at the heart of Christianity. And the answers to to everything else, to science, to sex, to suffering, to money, to relationships, all the things that Christianity has to say about that, stand or fall on who Jesus is. And so the first thing, the most important thing, the key thing is to work out who is this man. Christianity is about Jesus Christ. Now, the question of who Jesus is is answered here for the first time. And this is, as I said, the transition point. So the geography changes. No longer are we in Galilee, but verse 27, do you see? Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? Now, if you've read through Mark, these verses actually begin quite ominously. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. We read in chapter 6, just before that, that when Herod heard about Jesus, it was exactly the same. Chapter 6, verse 14, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, he's John the Baptist, raised from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he's Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. Herod couldn't see the truth. How will it be for the disciples? We know from verses 11 to 21 that they're utterly blind as to who Jesus is. And yet, verse 29, but what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. So how did the disciples go from you do you still not see or understand to you are the Messiah? How do they go from, are your hearts still hardened to you see I am the Messiah? The answer, of course, is hinted at the miracle that splits up these incidents. That's why Mark sandwiches these two instances of can the disciples see who Jesus is around a miracle where Jesus opens the eyes of a blind man. And Jesus opened the eyes of this guy to enable him to see the truth of the world. And now Jesus opens the eyes of the disciples to see the truth 
of who he is. The blind man couldn't see very clearly. Did you notice that? He thought people were like trees. And that's Mark's way of hinting that although Jesus has opened Peter's eyes to recognize that he is the Messiah, Peter still doesn't really get it, which is why in verse 30, Jesus warned them not to tell anybody about him. He's, he's saying, look, at the moment, you kind of, you see about like the way that guy saw. You see people as if they're like trees. You've got a lot to learn about who the Messiah is and what he's done. We'll see more of that next week. But how is it that people can go from eyes blind, hearts hardened, to worshipping Jesus as the Messiah. The only way that can happen is if Jesus miraculously opens eyes. And this passage, therefore, should deeply humble us. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you ought to be very, very humble. Why is it you see the truth about Jesus and other people you know don't? It is not because you are particularly clever and you could see through the arguments that are arranged against Christianity and you could work out the truth. It is not because you're more moral than most and so you are drawn to the inherent goodness of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. It is not because you're more spiritual and and so found yourself just wanting to, to come to know God. The truth is that like me, you only see the truth about Jesus because Jesus was gracious and he opened your eyes. He performed a miracle, just as miraculous, just as powerful, just as awesome as when he opened the eyes of that physically blind man. We sang earlier uh, John Newton's famous autobiographical hymn uh, where he looks back on how he went from being a pagan, wicked man who was a slave trader to being one who loved the Lord Jesus and lived to serve other people. And he says at the end of the first verse of that hymn, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And what's the hymn called? It's not called Amazing Me for Working It All Out. It's called Amazing Grace. It praises God for his kind act in opening blind eyes and softening a hard heart. Unless God miraculously opened your eyes, you could not worship Jesus. And the same is true even after you've become a Christian. We still need God's help to open our eyes every time we turn to the Bible. So do not, if you're a Christian, if you're a member of Christ Church Mayfair, please do not ever be so arrogant as to read your Bible without praying for God's help. Now pray the, the prayer of Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your law. Together with the humility must go thankfulness when you realize uh, all the things we've sung about tonight that God has given us in Jesus Christ. Adoption as his sons and daughters. Forgiveness completely for sins past, present and future. A righteous status that means we need not fear judgment day. A share in the inheritance that should only be uh, for the Son of God. All those things have been given to us. Why? Not because we deserve them, but because God miraculously enabled us to see and trust in Jesus Christ. If that's you, then your life should be marked by thankfulness. And even the darkest, hardest seasons of our lives, we still have something to thank God for. As we see Jesus Christ, as we trust him and as we follow him.
Look back on, reflect on, and thank God for opening your eyes if you're one of his. What about if you're not yet clear about Jesus? A number here tonight will be um, in that position. Well, the principle is the same. It takes a miracle to see the truth about Jesus. It's great you've come to church. You're willing to look at who Jesus is. Uh, I guess many of you will be reading the Bible one-to-one with Christian friends. That's a fantastic thing. Keep looking into the evidence. Keep working at it. But will you recognize that you need God's help? Will you pray, God, open my eyes? Will you admit you need him to forgive you and to enable you to see? And are those of us who would call ourselves followers of Jesus, are we praying for friends and family and colleagues? There are so many barriers that make it hard for people to, to turn to follow Jesus. And you cannot convince people just by the force of your intellectual arguments. There's some clever people here, but you will not force people with intellectual arguments. You will not attract people just by the beauty of our community. You need God to perform a miracle, so pray. Pray. Pray for people. Beg God to open their eyes. Recognize that without God performing a miracle, no one comes to see Jesus. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4 as he encourages us to look to God to perform the miracle and to proclaim the gospel through which, gospel, through which God opens blind eyes. 2 Corinthians 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus sake. Why would you bother preaching about Jesus if people are blind, Paul? Verse six, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Pray to God, proclaim Jesus, and watch the miracles. And because of that, you don't need to worry about who you share the gospel with. You don't need to make sure that you're cleverer than them so you can answer their questions. You don't need to make sure that they're quite weak-minded and so you you can browbeat them into submission. You don't need to make sure that they're really dissatisfied with life and, and longing for an answer. Because Jesus doesn't need help. He is God and he works miracles. What you need to do is pray and proclaim the gospel and pray and pray and pray and rejoice when you see him open eyes. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we thank you so much that the Lord Jesus Christ has the power to open blind eyes. Thank you for opening our eyes. We pray that we will be humble, recognizing it. It was not our cleverness that brought us to a knowledge of our Savior. And so we pray that we would be those who pray for others, that we would trust that you have the power to soften the hardest of hearts and that you can open blind eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.